0: Modern world history has been a complicated mixed bag with remarkable advances in art, science and technology. And so far, we've mostly managed to feed over eight billion people. But it seems we stumble from one crisis to another, war to famine, nuclear weapons, drought, flood extinctions, a growing divide between the rich and poor, and now of course, climate change. The question is, what's going on? And how long can we continue like this? And what does sustainability really mean? And crucially, what can we do about it? So Dr. Mark Isendorf is Honorary Associate Professor in the Environment and Society Group at the University of New South Wales. And Mark is a contributing author of Sustainability and the New Economics, published by Springer, which is edited by Stephen Williams and myself. And now, uh, Mark and I are co-authors of a new book, The Path to a Sustainable Civilization, Technological, Socioeconomic, and Political Change. Hello, Mark, and great to be talking to you.
1: Hello, Rod. Good to be part of this discussion.
0: Now, Mark, th- this book has been a huge commitment, and uh, when we were talking about writing it early on, you said you had previously thought you were never going to write another book and yet you signed up for this one. Why why, and what's your goal with this book?
1: Uh, I felt that something was missing from the discussions of our sustainability crises. There's plenty of discussion of the situation, the threats, the need to mitigate, but most of of the discussion of solutions focuses on specific issues, whether they're environmental or peace or social justice. And I felt there is a need for an overarching approach which tackles some of the driving forces that are pushing all these these terrible impacts together. And, and so that's really what motivated the start. The book fills a gap in discussing the two key underlying forces of environmental destruction and social justice and as we see it these forces are the capture of the nation-state by corporate vested interests and the existing economic system, the dominant economic system that supports that state capture and the book emphasizes the need not only to campaign on specific issues but to come to terms with these driving forces and to really weaken them.
0: Would you agree that the capture is not just of the state but a way of thinking? So what is commonly called neoliberalism, is that a big part of it?
1: Yes, certainly uh, neoliberalism is the theory behind the dominant economic system. So that's certainly part of it. And it certainly needs to be critiqued more severely, although it has been critiqued for many decades, uh, the neoliberal economists have ignored those critiques, they've awarded their own version of the Nobel Prize to one another, and they have remained aloof from the real problems faced in the real world. And in real world economics we have to put environmental protection and social justice first. We have to put them before economic efficiency.
0: Well, we'll talk a bit more about state capture in a moment, but a key word in the title of our book is sustainability. How far off sustainable are we right now?
1: Well, we're nowhere near sustainable. Uh, scientists have shown us that we have exceeded what we call planetary boundaries in a whole range of areas. Climate change is just one of them. Uh, Fresh water use is another. Uh, the impact on uh of land use on on our soils on our forests is another the need to protect our natural cycles our so-called biogeochemical cycles like the phosphorus cycle and the nitrogen cycle all these areas are, are now beyond what our planet can cope with and we really have to address them so we are facing existential crises, more than one crisis, indeed.
0: Well, the other key word in our book title is civilization. What do you see the impact of those things you've just described on civilization itself?
1: Well, the danger is that we could have reached and even passed the, the peak of human civilization and are now heading for collapse. And in fact, numerous studies including the studies by the Club of Rome, suggest that we are well on the pathway to collapse of our civilization partly due to a large degree due to environmental impacts but as you mentioned in the intro we are also suffering from increasing gaps between the rich and the poor gaps in both wealth and gaps in income and gaps in political power And, and this is of course polarizing and destroying our societies and we can see this in an acute form in the what used to be called the United States but could now be called the disunited states
0: sustainability has a few major facets to it uh, society is one you've just mentioned and the environment is another and what about the economy as well
1: Yes, so in my picture of sustainability, we first have to get the environment that supports us, that is our life support system, that has to be made. So within that system, we design, we modify our society to be consistent with environmental sustainability. And then the economic system, another another human creation, is part of our society. And and yet, the existing system is is completely in reverse. The existing system places economics first, then society, and then the environment. And that is a recipe for collapse.
0: Well, uh, another major part of our book is the economic system, and you've mentioned that, Mark, and I don't want to go into too much detail about it now because we cover it quite extensively in our book. But the dominant economic thinking, neoclassical economics, it pretty much ignores the environment or it treats it as an externality and as an infinite resource. Uh, how do we change that thinking? What sort of economic approach is there that improves on that?
1: Yes, uh, neoclassical economics treats the environment as an infinite resource and an infinite waste dump. <laughs> and again, uh, what we see now from the fact that we're exceeding planetary boundaries that that conception is wrong and destructive. The alternative broad conception is known as ecological economics and that is not a branch of neoclassical economics it's an interdisciplinary field that puts the environment and social justice first well ahead of economic efficiency. One of the main thrusts of ecological economics is that we have to transition to what's called steady state economy and that is an economy that does not increase the use of energy of materials or land and does not increase the human population and indeed one could say the population of certain animals like cattle and sheep (laughs) so it's sustainable in biophysical terms, Uh, no growth in physical terms and if this means that there should be no future growth in economic terms then so be it because GDP is really a very poor indicator it is not an indicator of human well-being so we must ensure that physically speaking we remain within the Earth's planetary boundaries and ecological economics a broad framework, an interdisciplinary framework for doing that.
0: Now, in the popular conception there's this notion that we just need a few solar panels, a few wind farms, that renewable energy is the solution and the circular economy and uh, is that simplistic thinking, Mark?
1: It is simplistic thinking because It doesn't take into account the continued growth in consumption that takes place under the existing neoclassical, neoliberal economic system. The situation can be brought out very clearly with an energy example. In 2019, just before COVID hit us, fossil fuels provided 80% of all energy use on this planet. That includes electricity, it includes transport and heating. Now 10 years before that in 2009 fossil fuels also provided 80 percent of all energy use. How is this possible you might ask? It's possible because between 2009 and 2019 energy, energy consumption grew substantially and much of that growth in energy consumption especially in transport and heating was in fossil fuels. So we're still in a situation with growing consumption that although renewable electricity is growing at a very high rate, it's starting from a small base and it is not at present overtaking fossil fuels. We have to deal with consumption as well and that brings us back to the economic system. We have to do away with GDP as an indicator of well-being, which it is not, we have to start transitioning initially with the rich countries transitioning to a steady state economy and because the poorer countries will need to grow this means that the rich countries will have to undergo planned degrowth and I emphasize planned because planned degrowth is not a recession it is a change in our social economic structure.
0: Yes, Mark, the way I like to think about that is uh, if we don't reduce ourselves, nature will do it for us and the result won't be pretty. Now, we have overwhelming evidence that the planet is in crisis. And when the planet is in crisis, civilization is in crisis. And if that evidence is is hitting us every day, we're seeing weather events and wars in the Ukraine and so on. If the evidence is overwhelming, why are we going in the wrong direction? What's pushing us in exactly the opposite way that we should be going if we're going to have a viable future?
1: We're being pushed in the wrong direction by vested interests who want continued growth in consumption and they want continued growth in their own industries, whether it's fossil fuels or weapons industries or gambling or or pharmaceuticals and other chemicals, you name it. And these industries have captured the nation states in most countries of the world. They have captured them in the energy field, in in the weapons field, and beyond. The capture has been done by political donations, by what we call rotating jobs, where there's a very intimate relationship between people in the captains of industry and in government so that jobs are rotated. Ministers will retire into a highly paid job in the industry that they were supposed to be regulating when they were ministers. Political advisors to ministers come from vested interests like the Minerals Council of Australia. We also see the media being largely taken over, especially the commercial media. media being taken over by these vested interests who are also very big advertisers in the media. We see vested interests creating so-called think tanks and we struggle to create alternative think tanks that work in the public interest instead of the interests of those industries. So once we recognize what these vested interests are doing we can tackle them. We can struggle for better democracy in in our decision making. We can struggle to remove some of the influences, the political donations, the revolving uh, door jobs, the, uh, the media influence, the media control by just a few industries, and so on.
0: Well, can you tell me a bit more about how you see that happening? Is it even possible, because we're talking about a power imbalance, so somebody listening to us right now, I'm just a, an individual, a, a single person, What chance have I got against forces like that?
1: Well, individuals can have a lot of influence if they join groups because it's the groups that have the influence. And groups can cooperate. So what we're arguing for in the book is groups that campaign campaign on a range of issues, groups in energy, climate, transport, social justice, poverty, you name it, they spend some of their effort on these overarching issues such as the control of the nation state by vested interests. And we're starting to see a movement being created. Uh, For example, in Australia, the Australian Democracy Network has been formed and it brings together interests from the environment, from social justice, from peace and other areas so that it can campaign on an overarching way to restore greater democracy in government decision-making and to weaken the power of these vested interests that are currently controlling governments and public services and beyond.
0: Now, Mark, our book is out any day now, and uh, we're both very excited to see that happening. Do you have a feeling of what kind of reception it might get?
1: well uh, for a start uh, people who are concerned about the environment and social justice and peace i think will receive it very well the uh, the economic the economics industry the dominant economics industry will be very critical and we can see the way they attacked the limits to growth uh, reports over the decades but um so they will be unhappy, they will be very critical and they will say we don't understand economics. But in fact, many of, as a scientist, I think economics is, is probably the most unscientific discipline that we have in universities. It has a whole range of assumptions that bear no relation to the real world. It has a concept of efficiency that does not exist in the real world. It has a whole bunch of myths associated with, with it, such as the claims need for endless growth on a finite planet and so it goes. So I think we're ready to counter the attacks of the economists and there may also be attacks from some of the very big industries that have powerful vested interests and they do not wish their links to governments and to the public service to be exposed. That's okay. If we get a debate, uh, that debate will inform the public even more.
0: Yes, Mark, I, I, I hope we do get attacked because you know you're making a, a mark when you pick up a few enemies. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to being uh, uh, picked on by some heavyweight players. And that will means that, that people are noticing uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: Well, just to emphasise that part of the critique of neoclassical economics and its offshoot, neoliberalism, is, must be an attack on continuing growth in consumption, initially in the rich countries and eventually moving the need to move to a steady state economy for the whole world.
0: Great, and thank you very much for your time, Mark, and uh, looking forward to book launches and uh, actually holding a copy of our book, The Path to a Sustainable Civilization: Technological, Socioeconomic and Political Change, and that's published by Palgrave Macmillan.
1: Thanks, Rod.